there's some interesting questions around to what extent will telcos let organizations like Palm Pay operate over-the-top mobile money services that directly cannibalize and compete with theirs? Hello and welcome to the African Tech Roundup, episode 133. This is where we round up the most important tech, digital and innovation highlights from across the African continent. This show is brought to you in association with our friends at Business Live and of course the team at Multimedia Live. Thanks to them, the African Tech Roundup is now available on businesslive.co.za. We're really excited about that. And of course, you can also find us wherever you stream Multimedia Live my name is Andy Masugu. I'm really glad you could join us. Uh, I'm terribly excited uh, for this episode because it's been an especially exciting month, month and a half on the African continent as far as fintech is concerned. And so we've decided to do a fintech signal check, unpacking some of the more interesting plays in the space. Stick around because we're going to get into all of that later. But first, allow me to welcome back to the show the Nigerian homie, the founder and writer of the subtext, Osaruman Osamui. How you doing, man? Uh, hi, Andela. How's it going? I'm very, back. very well, man. Great to be back. And of course, we've got an extra special guest joining us today in the form of Wiza Jalakasi. He's, of course, the Malawian technology entrepreneur extraordinaire, active on the continent for the last 10 years, mostly in stealth mode. Um, he's into all things mobile formerly at Africa's Talking as the head of business development and the current head of business development at Hover. The man is coming out of his shell these days, and thankfully, he's joining us right here on the show. Welcome to you, Wiza. Thank you, Andile, for having me on the show. Um, it's an honor and a privilege to be here. You've long been part of the village. This ecosystem, um, I think, uh, is what it is because of folks like you just... Uh, for the most part, you know, quietly hacking away at some of the, I suppose, more obvious and some not so obvious issues that, you know, we would do well to solve using tech, man. You're a, an under-PR'd character, man. <laughs> yeah, I suppose so. Uh, but like, I make the most noise on Twitter, I'm sharing a couple of thoughts here and there. And I am only now just realizing the, the value of being more vocal and being more out there. So it's something that I'm, I'm working on and plan to take more seriously. Uh, but for the time being, you know, uh, I quite like where I am. <laughs> Welcome to the light, Wiza. Welcome. I mean, it's grind either way. You work in the dark, you work in the light. It's all the same, brother. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, folks, before we jump into this fintech signal check, I thought it'd be fun just to find out what everyone's working on. You know, what's on your proverbial desktop, you know, which tabs are open, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and since you're, you're new to the show, Wiza, we'll start with you, man. What are you, what are you up to, man? So things I can share, just uh, I published an article. Ooh, that! What you see now? You see now? You had to do that, right? You had to do that. Now I want to know what you're working on that we can't talk about. What the hey. heck, bro? Okay, so um, working on some interesting technology at Hover to to enable more African developers, actually developers globally, to plug into USSD based infrastructure. Yeah, we're in the middle of a, a fundraising round, um, which is going quite well. 
Um, and yeah, it's pretty exciting. You're landing that. You're landing those shekels. We we hope so. We hope so. It's not over <laughs> until you open the bank account, and then there's a few more zeros than they were the day before. <laughs> um, oh, isn't it? It's not over until we hear about it on TechCrunch. <laughs> until you open the bank account, and you isn't that see how it works <laughs> these days? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, th- things I'm happy about. I recently, wrote an article just around the the transition from what I describe as mobile money 1 1.0 into mobile money 2.0 and the features of this new type of mobile money characteristics uh what's driving it uh, competition and i published that in october early october and uh i made a few sort of like predictive inclinations towards uh, successful players and it's just great to see a lot of them like coming out and raising money now and uh, sort of confirming some of the uh, inclinations that I had made. So that's pretty exciting. And uh, it's just exciting to see everything unfold. And a lot of it has been above my expectations. I, I never thought that companies in Africa be raising $40 million seed rounds, for example. So, so yeah, that's, that's super exciting. And I can't wait to see what's going to happen, um, in the industry over the course of the next year or two. We're totally going to share that article in the show notes. Uh, in fact, links to pretty much everything useful we referenced in the show will be made available in the show notes. This article is definitely one to check out. And, um, a lot of the companies that you referenced in that article we'll be discussing in the show here today. Weezer, what does it, what does it feel like to be an oracle? Uh, it's not bad, you know. It's really not bad at all. Uh, I'm even uh, seeing some signals for what's going to happen next year, but we'll discuss that later on. <laughs> off, off mic, right? Because yeah. uh, you're not sharing those secrets. Well, we're going to get them out of you, bro. Don't, don't even try. Also, Ruman, you're a busy man these days. You're popping up in our inbox. The subtext is on... Uh, is on an interesting uh, trajectory at the moment. Uh, but I mean, perhaps that's what's trending for you, but perhaps it's not. What, what, what are you up to there? Uh, let me answer the first question with great embarrassment. I have five windows with roughly 100 tabs open across <laughs> actually probably 150 minimum, mostly because I'm working on lots of things at the same time. Uh, uh-huh. where I'm publishing a newsletter alongside DFS Lab called Sufficient Balance, unpacking the opportunities in African fintech, primarily intended for uh, investors who are not familiar with the market. But also, you know, I, I've heard some good comments uh, since we started publishing three weeks ago from uh, the local ecosystem. Uh, so I'm, I'm, that's a significant part of, or it's, it's taking up a significant amount of uh, my, my bandwidth at the moment. Also, for the first time, uh, the subtext is preparing its subscription product which should be live uh, in Q1 next year. So I'm doing all the housekeeping Look at out. the moment which, uh, t- to make that happen. Uh, and a bunch of other things I can't talk about yet. So, You guys, and this uh, <clears throat> so much happening under the surface I can't talk about. You got to make me come over there and hit you over the head with a mic. <laughs> so and by the way uh, where's everyone at uh, i'm in lagos nigeria and, and where you at wizard i am also in lagos the center of excellence uh, <laughs> <laughs> the capital of progress yeah it's, it's amazing amazing uh, i think every mm-hmm. african needs to visit lagos at least once to understand what's missing in their city so yeah, it's quite a it's quite a fantastic place. Are you being tongue in cheek now? Because I, I I I now I don't know whether to back you now. I don't know what's going on. 
<laughs> no, you see, the thing, uh, what people miss about Lagos is not, you know, in terms of infrastructure or something you can tangibly see, but it's the people. Mm. Yeah, it's the hustle, man. It's yeah, hustle. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Listen, you know. I, I was reading some, um, some academic writing just this week on the science of hustle. You know, it's becoming an area of academic study. And I think it's about time, too, because... There is something unique about certain places in the world, and and I suppose there's there's a certain aspect to the environment or the circumstance that influence the people or create a maybe pressure cooker effect or an enabling sort of incubator effect. So there's something to be said for the environment, but there's also something to be said for everything that makes a certain culture prevalent in a place like say Lagos or. Um, I'd like to think it's in Arare as well. I'd like to think, you know, there's certain places like Johannesburg and not to, not to say it's not happening everywhere else and isn't everywhere else, but th- there has to be a science, a reasonable way to study how and why these, these dynamics form. I think you're definitely right. My belief is that population size is a big factor because it contributes to the um, scarcity of resources, including space. And when that compounds over time, um, you finding yourself in an environment where you're competing for pretty much everything from day one, it naturally increases your propensity to hustle. I don't have the numbers or the science behind it, but like that's my intuitive feeling and the thing that I notice about it. You find a similar work ethic dynamic in Addis Ababa in Ethiopia. It's not as yes, that's another joke. Yeah, yeah, it's not as loud or as, uh, for lack of a better word, aggressive as it might be in Lagos, but you can sense the the energy that's there. And then you know you go to somewhere like Lilongwe where. Um, I was gonna say you, you're Malawian. What's yeah. what, what's the what's the vibe in Lilongwe, bro? No, like Malawi is for chilling. It's a chilling country. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you, know, you know how I realize are you not it's gonna a lose country? your are you not gonna lose your street cred now? Your your people are going to no, uh, but we know that <laughs> we know that we're for chilling, and that's why tourism is is, is, is such a big thing in Malawi. <laughs> you know, the day I realized that Malawi was a chilling country was when I moved to Nairobi and I was in, I was in the CBD, and then the shops. They didn't close at twelve and open at two. They didn't close for lunch. Like they were, they were just open throughout. Is that still a thing in Lilongwe? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-uh. <laughs> so, uh-huh. so, so, so if I so yo, 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 yo. so if I need batteries at uh, one thirty. Uh, no, if you go to, if you go to, like into Old Town, um, where you find a lot of like hardware shops, whatever else, like they close at lunch and then the owners go home for lunch and they come back. Yeah. <laughs> now there, ha- there has to be more study into in, into all of these. I mean. There's so many oversimplifications about about it, even in a positive sense. So even this uh, this generalizations we are making, which I think are there, there's enough anecdotal evidence to suggest you know it's a real thing. But I think it's also dedicating some time and effort to to the science of what makes a Lagos like pump or what makes Lilongwe chill. Yeah, you know, that'd be fun to study. Anyway, I'll go last by telling you what's trending for me right now. Um, I, like you, Osiruman, I've got a ton of open tabs on my actual laptop. Embarrassing, yes, I know. But what's top of mind for me as far as work I've been doing, or work I'm actively doing, is, of course, the recently wrapped Ignite 2019 conference in Amsterdam, hosted by Spark. Your boy was on stage hosting the people. 
And we're busy in post-production right now, uh, producing a podcast series in partnership with Spark that's exploring some themes that filtered throughout the event. Really exciting to see folks from fragile states, uh, you know, on the African continent that I don't normally rub shoulders with. And many of us, frankly, don't rub shoulders with, not least because of how difficult it is for them to leave their own countries and travel around the world. Quite notably, I met folks from Libya, which was a fascinating immersion in how they are literally living in an alternate reality at the moment. Yes, my mind and heart are full from all the rich interactions I had at that event, and I'm looking forward to sharing some of the insights gleaned from there. Uh, I give a big shout-out to the team at Spark for, for partnering with the African Tech Roundup on that project, but also you know, a big shout-out to everyone I was able to rub shoulders with. Thank you so much to any new listeners right now that have come via that conference. Shout-out to you, fam. Welcome to the village. Right, so let's get to it. And really what we're going to do as far as the signal check is concerned is just throw out some of the um, the signals that we consider most relevant, uh, most interesting, most pertinent to the ecosystem and perhaps to the fintech uh, dispensation on the African continent right now. And then we're just going to unpack. I'm really, really excited to have you both uh, here to do the signal check with me as far as fintech is concerned. Both of you actively tracking the space, albeit for different reasons. Also, Ruman's obviously writing about this actively. So are you, actually, Wiza. Both of you, you know, highly opinionated about, you know, what to be excited about. And more importantly, why? I think that's where people differ. I think we're all sort of retweeting the same things, but I I, I want to get under the skin of, you know, why you think it's a big deal. So we'll start with what I consider perhaps one of the more recent highlights to the space. We've had a visit to the continent from a certain Jack Dorsey, um, uh, most famous probably for being the CEO of Twitter, I think in the mainstream, uh, less so of his involvement with Square, uh, which is interesting to me because I suppose it kind of points to what the mainstream considers most valuable or relevant to their, you know, to their interests. But yeah, a, a lot of the startup world recognizing Jack Dorsey as, I suppose, an influential player within the world of fintech. So I wonder to you guys, one, what his visit, as you've observed it, signals to you, signals to the ecosystem generally, but signals to the the world of fintech within within the continent, especially in the light of the tweet he put out recently. He highlights um, Africa is this great place of potential, particularly with regards to Bitcoin. Uh, there's a certain intentionality to him mentioning that. And then, of course, putting everyone on notice that sometime in the middle of 2020, he'll be spending somewhere between three to six months being here with us. You know, ah, bless. What do you guys think? I think Jack Dorsey, uh, he strikes me as someone who's uh, in in some ways ahead of the curve. Um, he's not a typical public company CEO. But to speak to the Bitcoin piece, uh, I suspect what he's referring to is that because Africa's payments infrastructure is in many ways underdeveloped, it's like we're seeing many interesting uses of uh, cryptocurrencies for things like remittances, for example. Um, and so like the fact that we don't have that invested infrastructure in the way that it would exist everywhere else, new things uh, will find it easier to take root here and grow. That's, that was my initial sense when I saw the tweet. Mm. What do you think, Wiza? Yeah, um, it's it's quite apparent that there is a gap in terms of the fragmentation of the financial services system across the continent. Like changing money um, between African currencies is a nightmare, and because such a gap exists, uh, 
there's a unique opportunity for something to quickly come in and fill it in. Um, my only like caveat or consideration might be around uh, regulation. And uh, specifically in the context of cryptocurrency, it appears that African regulators, um, the attitude is, is such that they frown upon um, cryptocurrencies. But as we regularize and attach more trusted brands, you know, like the Twitter brand, for example, if that were to be attached to a crypto product in Africa, I think it could really accelerate things that are going on. I want to talk specifically about an app that I'm very excited about. It's called BitSeeker. So it allows you to um, send money between Nigeria, Ghana, and I think one other country. Um, you cash in via crypto or via mobile money and then you cash out via crypto and via mobile money as well and it's just like super neat super useful um one of the only easy ways to get money out of nigeria so already we're seeing some innovation in that space and jack did meet with the with the bitseeker founder and he was quite excited about him as well so in qualitative terms what's the value of someone like jack dorsey one visiting the continent two going about his visits in the way he has, I mean, it's distinctly different to the approach Bill Gates has when he, I mean, he's probably the billionaire in that class of sort of big tech who's here the most frequently, albeit unannounced. But, and then I suppose Jack Ma is also a frequent visitor. But I mean, there's, there's a distinct difference in the way these guys come to the contact, who they decide to meet with and how long they stay, you know, how long he's decided to stay is also quite unique as far as Jack Dorsey. What do you think the qualitative impact of that on our ecosystem as it stands might be or could be? I think like one thing to note about Jack Dorsey's visit specifically was that he seemed to be spending a lot of his time actually engaging with the ecosystem actors. Um, entrepreneurs, people who are running hubs, people who are running funds and, and co, as opposed to the political, um, figures, which is what I feel, you know, these type of people who are visiting typically do. And what that signals to me is that he personally is serious about working with African entrepreneurs and is trying to plug into the existing structures that are there as opposed to coming and imposing something from the West or elsewhere, which I, th which I think is like super, super exciting. Also, Ruben, it's interesting to me. I mean, I've heard this view uh, Wiz is putting forward. I've, I've seen it everywhere on, on Twitter. And, I mean, people obviously appreciating his approach. I, I find it curious, though, because one, the assumption is that, you know, folks like Jack Ma or even like the Facebook boss or whoever, one, the assumption is just because we don't hear about it doesn't necessarily mean they're not meeting with, you know, people like the people we're seeing them, you know, Jack Dorsey. I think there's, there's an intentionality to Jack Dorsey letting us know he's meeting so and so and taking pictures with them and, and putting them forward. And I, and I wonder if there isn't a pragmatic necessity for the, you know, for folks like Bill Gates and others going about their entrees to the continent in the way they do. We've already referenced in passing regulation. And I mean, however popular you are in, in the tech ecosystem, if the government says you're not going to do your thing, you're not going to do your thing. I don't think anybody else has come uh, with the, I guess, apparent curiosity that, curiosity that he has. Um, and also, I think if Bill Gates was visiting ecosystem <laughs> players. Yeah, people, uh, someone would have spilled, eh? Yeah. Right <laughs> someone has a secret meeting with yeah, Bill Gates and he'll let us games. know on Twitter <laughs> tomorrow. Exactly. Nah, man. <laughs>
<laughs> you, <laughs> like, I, I will personally low spill. Key, you'd low-key ask someone um, else to uh, just uh, 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 what, uh, <laughs> take a photo of you coming out of the meeting. <laughs> Precisely. But one, one idea that I like to play with is that founders... Founders of companies uh, tend to view the world, use their companies as lenses through which to view the world. And so if you look at Jack Dorsey and his product, like it is absolutely native to Twitter that you would um, like give, meet someone, tweet a photo of them. That's the way lots of Twitter users use Twitter. That's one of the ways Twitter should be used. On the other hand, Alibaba strikes me as, uh, to put it in a certain way, the kind of company that would want to engage with um, large structures. And so when, when, or large official structures. Um, and so when, when Jack Ma comes to Africa, um, I guess that's the lens through which he's viewing the continent. Whereas, um, Jack Dorsey seems to be much more of a community type person. Given everything he has under his purview currently, who would stand to benefit the most from a cosign, a direct investment, you know, a joining of the boards, uh, something like that, uh, from Jack Dorsey? Before you even get there, there is actually significant value in the implied endorsement of the technology ecosystem that comes with somebody like Jack Dorsey coming down and spending time with uh, entrepreneurs. So Precisely. I find that, um, especially in regards to like regulation and policy making, there are not many symbols of what I can say are local champions that are decision makers at a government level can look up to for some sort of guidance. So until somebody like Jack Dorsey comes to Malawi, for example, and says like, okay, cryptocurrency is making sense. All of the people who are building on top of crypto might be um, ignored or looked down upon um, by by the environment. So just his, his mere presence will force some people to see that there must be some value that must be unlocked. And that's difficult to quantify, obviously, but like that's the first step. Um, in terms of like individual places he might put himself for his resources, I can't speak to that until we see it yet. But already just the trip alone has will open some doors for African entrepreneurs locally. Yeah, but also Ruben, who do you reckon could benefit the most from? Like um, imagine this- Say tomorrow that we fielded a, a press release saying Jack Dorsey joins a board or has invested in X. Who would benefit from that level, that level of cosign right now from Jack Dorsey? Uh, I, I would hesitate to, to speculate to. Oh, because I suppose uh, in some way you, you, would, you, you would be but sort of echo, um, pointing uh, to what Jack Dorsey <laughs> should do if you answered the question. <laughs> Uh, um, <laughs> in that case, I would benefit the subtext from receives subtext that's, receives, that's but I interrupted you. What, what would you say? Uh, perhaps not even in answering the question in, in sort of responding to, to the question in your own way. Lots, lots of good came from Mark Zuckerberg visiting, um, Nigeria and Kenya. Um, and, and also came through the Trans Zuckerberg initiative, making an investment in Andela. I have observed this happening with uh, a couple of international investors who are not familiar with the continent. Like they will Google tech in Nigeria. And it's like, if you see Jack Dorsey there, that's a, a very positive signal. If you see Mark Zuckerberg, that's a positive signal. If you see in the news that Jack Dorsey went to three countries in Africa, has promised to come live there for three to six months. Um, that's a signal that, you know, like we're not in the jungle. Um, and at the very least, which, which is a view that, uh, um, like if you people might subconsciously hold. I think, uh, the biggest value that I can see is like, um, one of saying this thing is happening. Um, and Jack Dorsey's approach of highlighting the individuals, 
um, or a few individuals who are working in the ecosystem. Um, again, am I the only one who noticed the interesting timing of Jack Dorsey's announcement that Twitter would no longer allow politicians to advertise on Twitter, and then his visit to to the continent? I, it's not immediately apparent to me what the link between that is because mm. I feel like it was in the wake of the negative sentiment around Facebook for not having a very um, clear policy on how they're going to handle political advertising. Well, there's that, but then there's also the the reality that if you're going to become a player on the African continent in fintech, and you're also going to maintain your position as the CEO of one of the world's most well-branded, well-known social media apps, um, there could be a crisis there. There could be a tension there. Fair point. Osiriman? I would hesitate to draw that link. Like my interpretation of uh, his thread was like, you know, Twitter is taking a stand in this case. Um, again, it's, it's not necessarily, it, it wasn't costing Twitter anything, anything significant to say they were not going to accept any political advertising. And, you know, I believe they will have to work out the details of what that even means, uh, whether that would cover like issue adverts, ETC. Um, but my sense was that it was primarily a reaction to, to the news that Mark Zuckerberg said he was not, that Facebook would not be, um, playing the arbiter of truth. Uh, that's, that's my, that's my sense today. It could also be a signal to all the politicians he probably did not visit on his trip. I suppose signaling that, um, his presence on the continent doesn't mean that he will be somehow more accessible and more amenable to their influence. I don't know. This is, this is just me. I, I mean, I just think uh, he's in a unique position. Um, as opposed to be fair, uh, it's 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 not a terribly unique position when you consider someone like Jack Ma, who has a number of of opportunities for such tensions to build, given all the different interests he he oversees. But um, I just thought it was quite curious, and I, I think to to transition us onto another signal, I, I you know, in 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 leaving this one behind, I'd say. You know, it was also quite curious to me to see a lot of people push back on um, some of the joy, the the jubilation, really the, the mostly positive sentiment folks like you and others, myself included, had about this visit. Um, people seeing this as sort of uh, beads and mirrors uh, and, and, and cautioning people not to be so excited until we know what he wants and... <laughs> and how it's going to benefit us in in real ways, and I I suppose there's there's room for that kind of thinking as well, not to be carried away. What do you guys think? Yes, there's some validity to that to that sentiment, but then what is the trade off? What are we comparing the the visits and the presence of all of these uh, Silicon Valley Chinese investors to against? Are we comparing it to nothing? And is if we're comparing it to nothing, <laughs> is, is is nothing that much better than you know? That's my perspective. Leave us alone. Don't come. <laughs> <Yeah>. Don't come. <laughs> we're, we're, we're cool all by ourselves. Like, yeah. So I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I hear you. I hear you. I hear you. Well, perfect segue to discussing the Chinese and their growing interests on the African continent. Which signal, as far as Chinese involvement over the last month or so, do you consider the most, uh, the most interesting, Osiruman? I think uh, Pompey's... $40 million seed round was definitely the most interesting thing. Okay, so unpack. For, for someone who, who's not familiar with that transaction, give us some light. Okay, so I will assume that anyone who listens to this podcast is familiar with Transition Holdings. If, if people aren't, they really, they, they, they need to invest in, in, in more podcasts here on this platform <laughs> at africantechroundup.com. <laughs> Shameless plug. All right, here we go. Carry on. So Transition. Yes, so about a year ago, a year and a half ago, I wrote an article called Transient Trojan Horses, which basically tried to 
examine what their strategy uh, in Africa might be. That is, they were selling phones effectively at cost or uh, at very low margins. Um, they were priced um, in such a way that many people could afford them. And like I was uh, pushing for the view that that was primarily a Trojan horse through which they would uh, introduce many other services, which they would then profit from, given that they, they then owned, um, I guess, the distribution infrastructure that everybody else was relying on. So if you're building a, a mobile app today, um, or whatever service you are, you're effectively making a bet that there is someone on the other side of, uh, of your connection who has a mobile phone, who has a connection, uh, who wants to consume whatever service. And owning that infrastructure is a valuable piece of, I guess, real estate, to use the word loosely. Um, and Palm Pay is Transition's payments play. Reading the writing on the wall, we will see Palm Pay come pre-installed on Techno, Infinix, and Itel phones, which are the brands that Transition um, owns. And th- the reason I find it most interesting is that, specifically in Nigeria, it is no longer a question of OPE, quote-unquote, dominating the market. There is now a race. Things have now become more interesting because OPE has a capital advantage of our local companies. Um, they also have a branding advantage, given that uh, they probably have the most popular mobile browser, if I remember correctly, Opera, and many other distribution advantages that local companies don't have. But I know, I know they have 100 million uh, users in Africa. The introduction of Palm Pay, with a, a large war chest where they have and a distribution advantage has made the market interesting to, to analyze or to think about because you then begin to think about Opera or OP is going to distribute their services using very likely phones that are owned by Transition. So which of their positions in the value chain is more valuable or gives, gives each player more leverage? Um, where OP's capital can be matched by Palm Pay's distribution advantages. Um, that's what I found most interesting. A lot of the these fintech signals we are discussing are are proxies for a bigger discussion uh, worth having about who is in a position to curate and and indeed orchestrate the ultimate super platform play. And uh, as you were talking, I just realized that there might be a small room or indeed a big room of very smart people over at a place like Google, for example, crunching all the ways everything they have purview on can be brought to bear to match the potential platform advantage Opera Transion could have. And and some now I'm thinking about Google's announcement, uh, their aspirations to be the bank of the world, essentially, within that context. I, I wonder if that's, that thinking is sound, given everything you've been observing, Wiza. Yeah, I think to some extent, but then my worry is that um, for 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 the companies like Facebook and Google, you know, Facebook also announced Facebook Pay. Um, That's right. Earlier, earlier. Oh, you mean Libra Light, basically? Yeah. Okay. Cool. Um, yeah, it's, it's not it's, so. <laughs> Calibra Calibra Network um, <laughs> installment part one. <laughs> I suppose. I suppose you can call it that, but like um, uh-huh. from the signals uh-huh. that I'm seeing, it's it's re- they're really like very separate products. Um, uh, and I think no, they are. Yeah. I'm being tongue in cheek here, but I mean it's part of it's part of the plan, yeah. guys. Let's be honest. It is. It is. I guess you know it's like the alpha alpha version. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's like yeah. So we'll do this while you know the world comes around. Yeah. So I feel like and also if they'd done the Facebook thing, the Facebook um, 
if they'd done Facebook Pay before they launched Libra, we'd all have an even harder time imagining Libra isn't a Facebook thing. Yeah, you know? yeah. Yes, that's or just a definitely, Facebook definitely. Thing. definitely. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, carry on. Sorry, I I, I interrupt. Um. Yeah. I feel like yes, those are positive signals. But then I'm thinking about market prioritization. And um, Osarimin shared earlier this week that like a big thing that we don't consider about Africa is that it is actually a series of small fragmented markets vis-a-vis, you know, China and India, which are similar in some senses from a scale point of view to the continent. But then there are, you know, singular unified markets. So I feel like for something like Google's, Google's bank project or Facebook pay, it'll make a lot more sense for them as global companies to start with markets like India that are um, easier to break into and return more on their um, investment and efforts um, than it would be to get into Africa, particularly with the context of integrating with local payment methods in each country, which uh, vary widely. I mean, in Zimbabwe, it's EcoCash. In Malawi, it's Airtel Money, Zona, Pamba. In Kenya, it's M-Pesa. In Nigeria, it's the banks. And one thing that we sort of like take for granted is that in order to be able to thoroughly integrate a payment method, you're going to probably need a local entity or some sort of like local presence, which um, I don't foresee somebody like a Google coming in to do in the, in the short, uh, short term, perhaps in the medium to long term. Um, on the flip side, you know, some, someone like Ope, Africa is their primary market. So uh, I think that the two most interesting things to happen um, in the last quarter or so are the $40 million fundraised by Pompey that Rosarmin has alluded to, and then the $120 million Series B um, by Ope. And what is interesting about it for, for me is not the fact that they've raised $120 million, though I suppose that would be very useful. I know I could do a lot in life with $120 million. <laughs> but it is that the fact that they've raised from uh, <laughs> Mates One, Dian Ping, the, the Chinese super app platform with you know, over 46,000 employees. Um, I'm reading an article right now in the Financial Times that um, says that they, they beat expectations with a 44% rise in sales during the third quarter, uh, achieving another profitable three-month period. So yeah, China is a different market, but these guys clearly know what it takes to make a super app work. And what is uh, interesting for me is the extent to which they'll be lending their expertise to companies like Ope. On the flip side, I think Ope has a massive challenge in front of it because their success in Nigeria is specific to their Nigeria execution, which they've done very, very well. But I don't know if that strategy is going to map one-to-one with in, in, in other markets. I also think... I suppose when you consider like transients, transients, um pretty legit regional footprint yep. uh, or sort of multi multi market footprint yep. and and i mean i saw a crazy number which i i, I can't repeat because i haven't verified it but i mean that their free cash flow is in the hundreds of millions yeah i wouldn't be surprised um, you know so there's that to contend with as well yeah and one thing that's unique about transient guess in the, in the context of this super app thing is the amount of groundwork that they're doing so last month there was a china africa mobile internet economy summit it was a closed door invite only event primarily sponsored by by transient techno 
yeah in nairobi and and they revealed that like they've already got licenses to do mobile money like to operate the entire full stack of mobile money in like five markets and i have noticed a trend where um transion is poaching telco execs or ex-telco people who already have their relationships in place in each of these markets to be able to to build out this you know full-scale uh, mobile money operations a caveat around that is that somebody like a, a Pompey will be seen more directly as a competitor to telco-led mobile money solutions than an OPE because of how they've positioned themselves. And there's some interesting questions there around to what extent will telcos let organizations like Pompey operate over-the-top mobile money services that directly cannibalize and compete with theirs, especially because it's clear that these guys are setting up their own agency networks, so they're not going to be leveraging existing mobile money solutions. And I think that's where um, the, the real fight is going to be, um, not amongst the super app players themselves, but it's going to be more like super apps versus telcos. And um, I don't know how that's going to really, really play out. And I'm concerned f- foremost for the smaller fintechs that have got really innovative services that people like, but they don't have the capital to be able to compete with the marketing machinery of Ope. Ope launched a car sharing, a ride sharing service, and they're offering rides for 200 Naira. This is just over half of a dollar uh, anywhere in Lagos. If I start my ride-sharing startup today with Ride, will I be able to compete? <laughs> uh, not quite. Um, not for long. Uh, yeah, or yeah, something. While I agree that some local companies will find it difficult to compete, I tend to take the view that we should look at the world as it is. That is, um, Ope is in the market, um, full stop. Pompey is in the market, full stop. Um, any businesses that rely on charging consumers transaction fees, they're probably not getting to significant scale anymore. And it's like, I guess the question would then be, what do you build on top of the, that infrastructure? Or what kinds of companies will succeed in a world where many consumers have not, have not been educated and they are now more comfortable using digital services? Initially because they wanted to get like free lunch, literally. But afterwards, maybe that begins to expand the total addressable market for fintechs or for te- technology companies more broadly. But, um, like in the country and, yeah, and, and yeah, I suppose, I what suppose. Do you think about that, Lisa? Fair, that's a fair point. I'm, I'm just curious to see like what it actually, how it actually plays out in practice. I would love for somebody like Pompey and Ope to release APIs, but given their strategies uh, around sort of getting people into <laughs> this like walled garden, um, I wonder if they really have any incentives to do so. I'll draw a parallel with like, um, with Apple's payment product. I'm pretty sure developers in the West would love to see like Apple Pay APIs can integrate directly, but then Apple has an incentive to get more and more people into that walled garden. So you've got this like, you know, chicken egg uh, scenario. And uh, Mm. um, my worry is that most companies won't survive the waiting period that it'll take for these companies to reach the critical mass that is required for it to make sense for them to start releasing APIs. I mean, Safaricom M-Pesa has been alive for over a decade, and we only saw the Daraja API released two two years ago or so. You know, <laughs> and it's only last year when they started like aggressively promoting it after they had captured enough value within the closed loop. So that's that's why I'm, I'm just concerned. Perhaps there's something worth reading into in. Uh 
Jack Dorsey in, in intentionally citing Bitcoin as, I guess, part of the future of, of African fintech, right? I think it's conspicuous in the context of how it doesn't force him to align with existing structures that basically engineer frictions <laughs> that prevent mass adoption or uh, mass dissemination of these technologies. Basically, it, it almost sounds to me like while he's trying to figure out who to partner with, if he will at all, he's probably surveyed the, the treacherous nature of all these walled garden plays or all these players who are trying to beat the next guy out to having everything to themselves. Also, Ruman, you are like, you like to look at things as they are. Things as they are, are, are that like there's a ton of engineered complexity in this space that exists that has a direct consequence on how quickly all of this can become a, a mainstream part of how we transact and do business. That dynamic is also in part the reason why there isn't a default advantage to, a, say, Google or a Facebook or an Apple, even with their entrees into the space, you know, at scale around the world. Because those at scale advantages don't necessarily apply in a world where all of these frictions exist. I resonate with that view. It is obvious that tech market by market is maybe not worth it for, say, Facebook or Google to invest the resources or plant the flags needed to, quote unquote, take over. Um, if I worked at one of those companies, like I would pick uh, two, three, four markets and concentrate my attention um, in the short to medium term and probably work with aggregators like to develop some presence which over in the long term can then get deepened so like if i was to if i was a facebook trying to push facebook pay or libra i would like look at obviously nigeria look at kenya look at many of the markets where the, uh, there seems to be the most economic activity digitally uh, or the most mature digital ecosystems as observed from my platform um, and then partner with whoever's whoever's big there and i'm i'm very sure many of the many local companies would kill to be the on ramps uh, onto libra even given a global perception is that libra's chances are now much worse than they were before to speak to bitcoin specifically i do think in many ways cryptocurrencies solve actual problems with moving money um, and other use cases across the continent a few weeks ago we had to transfer money from Nigeria to Kenya, um, and even sometimes from Kenya to Nigeria. And like Bitcoin has been a very useful remittance tool, even though it's not an officially sanctioned one. Like trying to use any of the existing services was just too cumbersome. Either um, I was going to get charged like lots of fees, um, the actual restrictions in place, so that I couldn't move money out of Nigeria. Meanwhile, one of us will buy Bitcoin send to the other one the other one liquidates that bitcoin like money has been transferred in less than an hour basically free it's it's talked about a lot as a good use case but actually experiencing it like, and i mean there was this uh, article i read this uh this bitcoin whale like offloaded i think what nearly half a billion dollars worth of bitcoin i think paid something like less than 40 cents for the transaction <laughs> Um, so, I mean, there's a, a somewhat compelling case for, <laughs> for, uh, for, for affordable remittances uh, via Bitcoin. But I think there's this open source vibe to Bitcoin yeah. as a notion, right? That isn't represented by any of these, you know, this, this OPE, this, you know, yeah. Pompe, by any of these, uh, these guys that I, I think there's, there's a real intentionality to someone like Jack Dorsey, like going out of his way to mention that. You know? Yeah. I think, I think like, you know, the big thing about, uh, the signal that I got from, from Jack's tweet about Bitcoin was that it makes a lot of sense as the, 
digital value store that we can play around with continentally. Again, because of the fragmentation issue, we have like currency issues. So even if I have M-Pesa and M-Pesa is across Africa, I still have to manage M-Pesa in like 50 plus currencies, which is a nightmare. And then two, <laughs> Bitcoin yeah. is extensible by <laughs> default. So we're not waiting for a Bitcoin API. <laughs> Um, it is like truly digitally native. Um, you can plug it into various things. So that's a, a massive plus. The only area where I think it falls short is like accessibility. Um, there's still yeah. a ton of technical overhead required, um, for an individual to play around with it, though that's soon going to change. There's an interesting startup called Dial Crypto. So they're making it possible for people to create and manage wallets via USSD, which I think is like incredible. Um, whether or not the telcos would let them deploy that at scale and integrate with mobile money is another story altogether and beyond. And whether regulators won't see that entire a game as a, a big move to undermine, yeah, you know, their the monetary sovereignty. Yeah, so, you know I what I mean. Know. So we saw this with with in Kenya. Yeah, I was going to say we saw yeah. this with Bitpesa um, and Mpesa or Safaricom in, in yeah, Kenya. Yeah. Yeah. So unpack that for, for people not familiar with uh, with that uh, situation, guys. It it would appear it would appear it would appear that there was resistance from um, Safaricom. Uh, in Kenya in regards to a product called BitPesa, um, specifically because it allowed people to buy and sell Bitcoin via M-Pesa. And, uh, you know, we, we're not very sure what happened from the outside looking in, but it would, it, it seemed that BitPesa was blocked from operating on top of M-Pesa and they've had to make a lot of um, changes to their, to their business and their platform in order to keep operating in Kenya. And so I, I just wanted to reference the, the actual tweet. I don't know why I didn't read it earlier um, that Jack Dorsey uh, put out recently. He said, sad to be leaving the continent for now. Africa will define the future in brackets, especially the Bitcoin one. Not sure where yet, but I'll be living here for three to six months, mid-2020. Grateful I was able to experience a small part. Now, that's the tweet I guess I'm reading into uh, as we make this discussion. And... You know, let's talk about, I think, the most significant local, I suppose, success story. I think this, this one's the one that easily, I think, got the most people excited because after the Jumia embarrassment, it turns out like the first African unicorn was a dud. And I say that quote unquote, um, as far as them being the first African unicorn. Uh, now we have the true or the legit African unicorn or homegrown <laughs> unicorn, like people, uh, yeah, the homegrown unicorn, which is InterSwitch, are landing an investment from Visa that puts the company's valuation at a billion dollars, a very, a fairly sizable investment. I, I want to know what you guys think about this investment and what it signals, but I, I found it quite curious that uh, some of the, the big name brands within our ecosystem who lauded the Jumia deal like unreservedly, almost to to the point of embarrassing defensiveness as something good for the for the ecosystem and the continent and good for the world, without missing a step, just go, well, InterSwitch is, is the new big deal. So yeah, what do you guys make of this? Uh, what does it signal, um, given everything you know uh, about InterSwitch? So there's, there's two things to unpack. Number one is the Africanness. Um, I'm, I'm not an expert in, in the Africanness or Africanality of companies. Osaruman is, is bristling <laughs> even as you say that. Yeah. 
we have we have very we have long and uh, uh, passionate conversations about whether or not that's even relevant I, to yeah, this discussion. But but assuming <laughs> that it is, I feel like um, InterSwitch feels more African than um, the, the Jumia <laughs> does. Uh, so that's that's because it is. But uh, I won't make that a problem. <laughs> um, that's one thing. So that's that's pretty interesting. Okay. Number two is that okay. the, the the unit economics and the financial performance of the business is uh, quite tangible and based on metrics that are already existing. So they're not raising this money because they want to run an experiment or find a new business model. Um, it's or, they, or because they've told a good story. Yeah, <laughs> um, it's it's actually a tangible, solid business. So I think that the the valuation would stick even in the public markets um, after the IPO, um, hopefully next year. Um, and then it's also a fantastic story for African founders who are, you know, trying to really get in into the fintech space and trying to, to figure out what their future might look like in 10 years, in 15 years. Like, what does an actual exit path look like? Are exits actually possible? Because prior to this InterSwitch deal, we didn't know that you could, um, you could build a unicorn or that you could exit in this way. So I think the significance is more around the symbolism for me it's about the symbolism for myself as an african founder knowing that like i could be like mitchell one day um who's the founder and ceo of interswitch um so yeah that that to me are the, the biggest things i'm not going to talk much about the jumia um no no we don't have to revisit jumia <laughs> yeah. but you, frankly. you they, they don't you know this <laughs> the stock is up six six point two four percent this morning, but that's a story for whatever. Another time. <laughs> whatever. What, what, whatever. I, I I don't care. I think Jason and Joko's really excited about that right now because he's he um, tweeted the other day that he's putting some loose change on that stock because he felt it uh, you know it was sufficiently discounted enough to, to warrant a gamble. Whatever, which is exactly what it is, a gamble. And that's okay. If you know if you're into into gambles, that's fine. Um, or you can certainly sustain it as part of your portfolio, um, you know, to, to speculate. That's fine. Um, but let's, let's not joke. Let's not be jocular. Eh? Let's not be jocular. <laughs> this thing is this. <laughs> yeah, see, I, see, you're dragging me back down, bro. You're taking me back. You're triggering me. Uh, and there, there, I, I'm triggered. No I'm already triggered. I need yeah. to talk myself. No one but I wanted to ask uh, also, Ruman, also Ruman, I, for, for people who are not familiar with InterSwitch, how are they being so great at being a business in Nigeria? Um, uh -huh. the, the company was founded in 2002, I believe, um, which means a, a 17 year old company, uh, which I guess should be a signal uh, to both founders and investors um, for like how long the journey is. Preach. So this is, this is not a four year journey. Um, again, if you want, if, if you want to build, build uh, something of this scale, uh, but 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 InterSwitch um, strikes me. I, I don't know too much about the company internally, but it strikes me as a very traditionally run company. So uh, when you use the word startup, uh, I cringed a bit because nothing about the company signals uh, that it's a startup. And in fact, before many of the, before you know the the new wave of payments players like the Paystacks, the Flutterwaves of this world, the Amplify Pays before they got acquired, InterSwitch, I believe, did not have uh, uh, or were not taking a developer-first approach to the market. So they're primarily a business. Uh, leveraging strong relationships they've made with, um, from what I understand, local government, utilities firms, and things of that nature. Yes, they connect different banks. There you uh, go. They're, they're switching infrastructure. I, I guess my question 
to you also, Ruben, given how you brought up this point earlier on, is if you are working at, say, Pompey or Opey, uh, even like the larger players who might not have a, an immediate direct interest in sort of getting in the mud with everyone else to sort of try and capture these these uh, fragmented markets, uh, so Google Pay, Apple Pay, whoever, how would you look at an InterSwitch as a potential success to emulate or a threat to mitigate? My initial my initial sense is that I'll treat InterSwitch as a partner mm. and and none of the things you mentioned. That is find 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 ways to collaborate with them to create new value as opposed to competing for um, I guess the same cake. Um, mostly because uh, the, some of the signals I've seen across these markets suggest to me that while elsewhere the David and Goliath story where you you come in and and defeat existing structures is is seductive. I'm not sure to what extent it is true um, in, in a market like Nigeria, Kenya, Uganda, mm. Tanzania, where mm. industry does business. Sure. Fascinating discussion so far. Let's head down south with the, the next few things. Uh, let's talk Bank Zero, which is um, the latest digital bank to launch in South Africa following the likes of Time Bank and Discovery Bank. Uh, it's an exclusively digital bank. It's... Um, quite famously backed by Michael Jordan, who is credited with taking First National Bank in South Africa from a sort of stodgy legacy institution to what up until maybe the launch of, I'd say, Capitec Bank uh, would be the like the most sort of agile, sort of modern legacy banking in- institution, right, in South Africa. And so he left uh, FNB some, some years ago and has since become easily one of the more high profile venture capitalists operating within South Africa, within the fintech scene. And so Bank Zero was launched in South Africa with much fanfare. You know, they were promising takedowns. They were, you know, putting out very cheap. He was putting out a very cheeky tweets about how, you know, time was up for time and things like that, or the time was right for something new. Uh, it just, you know, he, this, I'm not quoting him here, but I mean, it, there was a lot of, intentional sort of ribbing on the part of of Michael Jordan and his team at at Bank Zero just uh, suggesting that they were going to do things in ways that had never been done before. They've launched this card that is supposed to be far more secure than any of the than any of the plastic out there at the moment. Things of that nature, right? And what's really interesting is his former employer, FNB, was cheeky enough to launch a product with the word zero in it um, in the same week the CEO of uh, FNB's consumer division, uh, Christoph Newwood, was asked about why they did that. He was like, oh, it was just purely coincidental. Their new brand, uh, Easy Zero, <laughs> the Zero Fee account they just launched, has nothing to do with the fact that Bank Zero just launched. So, guys, I, I don't know what you make about this whole digital banking wave. I think of companies like Carbon who are styling themselves around the vibe uh, of banks in, in, in Europe, like Sterling and Monzo. And Monzo and and Revolut. What, what do you make of banking a la this whole sort of digital first, digital only thing? And and how relevant is it to the, the African context or within the context of, of the markets you guys observe most closely? <laughs> Mr. Wiesa, right. so, yeah, so I don't have Wiesa, what do you somebody who enjoys going into a bank branch. It's a process that's full of friction. It felt antiquated the first time I opened my first bank account when I was young. I was like, why, why do you need all this documentation? I think it's, um, it's something that is fundamentally begging to be disrupted. So digital banks are going to, um, succeed in a world of instant gratification and, um, my, where my smartphone can do anything. 
Because of this, I think digital banks are going to struggle to differentiate um, amongst each other's services because there's really not much that you can offer that's different from you know, the next digital bank. People like the convenience of being able to open an account on their phone, they get their card, whatever else. All of their money is probably transacted electronically anyway. So um, there's very little need for cash. Delarue, I think, the, 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 the company that prints currency for the UK and many African um, companies is um, struggling financially, looking for... Countries, uh, you mean? <laughs> is struggling uh, financially and is looking for a bailout. Um, that signals to me that the demand for cash is decreasing. And this is a trend that's consistent globally. I think that these initial iterations that we're seeing um, will filter out naturally all of the, the, the players that are not solid or reliable. And then in the end, there'll be like, you know, four or five primary digital bank players in each market. The way they are, banks today in today's structure it's going to like just it's going to just take the same model but what will change is that the distribution will be on the app as opposed to the branch but it's here and there's nothing that can be done to to change it what's interesting about this bank zero versus um easy zero phenomenon is that easy zero on fnb is a ussd um application that can reach the more phones it seems that bank zero is a smartphone only offering so I think FNB may have one-upped Mr. Jordan over there, uh, but maybe they'll attract a different caliber of customer. The more sophisticated user will prefer a smartphone experience uh, and may be willing to pay more. Um, but then for the mass market, something along the USSD lines might be uh, more attractive. But yeah, this thing is here to stay. It does appear like Bank Zero and Discovery Bank are going after a uh, a sort of high-end consumer or a sort of high net worth consumer and uh, probably looking to harass like the 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 big fours private clients and um and, and there's and private clients is used loosely i'm a, i'm an fnb private client and I, I can assure you that there's a there's a sort of prestige that name implies that is, is not something i experience as a private client the IP. uh <laughs> Um, but yeah, so there's, there's the private clients and then, then there's obviously sort of private banking beyond that. And I imagine Discovery Bank and Bank Zero, uh, Bank Zero kind of just to, to a larger degree appealing to, to folks like me and, and, and people who are sort of in, in the tax bracket that allow them those, uh, those services from the existing banks. And then the likes of Time Bank targets, to my mind, the the kind of clientele that you know has found Capitec uh, a compelling proposition relative to everything that existed before Capitec came to be. So, and 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 I suppose it's it's interesting for me to observe a brand like Capitec sort of mull over potential disruption uh, disruption, given how effectively they've been at disrupting uh, you know the comfort in the low end market that uh, some of the banks have had before. I wonder why this feels like someone's dad at an eighteen at an eighteen year old party <laughs> trying to rap like Drake. I, you know I, mean? I it's, think it's, it kind of feels like sick, like this fifty five year old man at, at a party with all these kids, and you know, I'm I'm still cool, kids. You know, granted, we're we're not cashless yet, and we're not the future isn't here yet, but 
I wonder if banks are, you know, do they have folks like you speaking to them without, you know, advising them? Yeah, um, I think like maybe because we're used doing? to the first movers in, in other markets being independent startups who are trying to compete with incumbents. Now, what I'm observing on the continent, at least for markets like Kenya, is that um, startups don't have anywhere near the capacity that is required to launch a full-scale bank. There are some notable exceptions like Kuda in Nigeria who actually have like a microfinance bank license so they can control the full banking stack and appify it to the degree that they want. Um, but the offerings by some banks like CBA Loop in Kenya is pretty, it's pretty compelling. The app works. Um, it's very modern. Um, the features are very robust. So I think they're catching up, uh, but it'll take a bit of time. And ultimately, because they have embedded themselves within the, the banking industry, which is notorious for, for being exclusive and being, um, resistant to innovation, they're the ones that are going to succeed. I'd rather as a startup, get acquired by a bank and, you know, make a very fancy UI or UX and as opposed to trying to compete with them. And we just need to be a bit more patient, but um, yeah, it's going to happen in my view. Again, I just heard your voice in my head, Osaruman, on some, we must, uh, you know, evaluate things as they are. And the truth is banks are probably stressed and they're probably not making as much money as easily as they ever have, but they still, they're still. Yeah, it can be that uh, bad. I mean, with tell uh, that's not about private customers such as yourself ensuring that <laughs> they have recurring, <laughs> they have recurring revenues. <laughs> I'm pretty sure they're not suffering. <laughs> I wish you knew my struggle with that, with this private clients thing and how it's just ridiculous. By the way, I mean, I'm already partly sold given how, um, uh, needing to frequent the UK, uh, I needed to be banked there in my personal capacity. And I was totally unable to, to land, you know, a NatWest account or a Halifax account or, you know, one of the bigger, you know, HSBC account and all the paperwork you were talking about earlier. Uh, Revolut, Presumably because I'm already pre-vetted by PayPal, which is, you know, a partner of theirs in the back, if not invested in them, I'm not sure. I don't know what went into them being able to bank me so readily and easily to get me a virtual card and, and mail me a card. It just, it made me realize just how like the incumbents are missing a trick. And, but then it, it made me wonder to what extent, you know, the frictions I'd encountered even through that process reflect the the frictions of an everyday African who's looking to be banked or frankly doesn't even think of banking as this activity called banking. It's just, I'm trying to get things done. I'm trying to move money X, Y, Z. I'm trying to pay my workers. I'm trying to pay school fees. And in the context of like people who think in those utilitarian terms, is zero fee banking an innovation worth celebrating? Perhaps, I don't know. I think zero, zero fee banking um, is, I guess, the bare minimum yeah. moving forward. Given the trends yeah. that we're seeing, aha, uh -huh. that's we've the been floor. spoiled. That's the new. That's the we've new floor. Spoiled. Like now, I, when I think about like paying for a transfer, I'm like, ah, why? <laughs> why should I pay yeah. for this? Nigeria, for example, right now, now the idea of like charging transaction fees for transfers uh, is not very compelling, and I think I worry that as part of the strategies to drive adoption of these digital services, they are creating unsustainable business models. Some of them with like negative unit and, economics. And getting us hooked yeah. and, and getting us addicted to it as consumers. NCBA loop gives me money back every time I swipe my card for amounts over <laughs> $20. Like they give me money for using the card. 
Uh, I'm not complaining. Like, I like the money, but then if I was an NCBA shareholder, I might be very concerned about where they're going to recoup this money that they are giving me. But I imagine that the idea is to hit a certain volume or a certain scale where the interest on your deposits um, more than makes up for um, the money that is being spent. And then the, the, the question that comes from that would be, how much room is there for such type of players? Because if everyone is depending on scale, then you can't have like, you know, 10 <laughs> players. It means mm. like there must be like one, two or three at most. And Which is why the, the super app play or the super platform play is, is a thing. It's a race to build the, the supermarket. So guys, let's take it to Zimbabwe. All right. Um, where NetOne, which is the government-owned telco in Zimbabwe, competitor to the more well-PR'd Econet, famous for EcoCash and other innovations. Um, so NetOne recently announced that um, they would be doing exactly what we're talking about. Give up the revenue they'd otherwise earn by charging you to use their money transfer service, presumably for the future benefit of having you sign up with them and maybe monetize you some other way. Uh, what do you guys make of this, man? And do you think this is a trend that could take hold in other in other markets where mobile telcos with sort of dominant, or in fact, not so dominant mobile money services look to sort of disrupt the market leaders? So some, so say Airtel in, 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 in Kenya looks at uh, M-Pesa and goes, you know what, we're just going to make transfers absolutely free on our network and, and try and steal away as many M-Pesa users from, from Safaricom as possible. Can you imagine a world where that would happen or could happen? Yes, it could happen. I don't know to what extent it's going to be effective because the most important feature of Safaricom's M-Pesa is that um, everyone who I want to pay yep. already has it. Like regardless yep. of the transaction uh, fees, like I don't the network effects, yeah, or the the established network, yeah, exactly. So so maybe maybe completely free transfers is a way to build that network, but in itself, I don't see that like yeah. changing. Right. The, but Wizard, the, don't you see this as a, a great experiment for why do people in Zimbabwe use EcoCash? Is it because it's the most reliable service? Is it no? Is it straight up people don't have a choice? Yeah, I think it's closer to the latter of people not having a choice. Uh, if I if I can borrow from Osariman's words, he once described something as being ubiquitous to the point of invisibility. Um, <laughs> that is so Osariman, yeah. though. Um, so sensei right there. <laughs> and uh, like M-Pesa in Kenya is expensive. It is actually really, really expensive, but I don't have a choice. Yep. Uh, so is EcoCash. Yeah, like you don't have a choice Crazy. because... Everyone that you want to pay and all of the merchants that are there are only exclusively accepting EcoCash. I think in markets where you have native mobile money interoperability, like Tanzania, I think Tanzania and, and Malawi are the only two countries where I've seen really native mobile money interop, then that sort of strategy can work because I can still pay everyone else free of charge and then they would get the, the e-value in their home mobile money network at the same value that I sent it. What I mean by this is that if, if Zimbabwe had native mobile money interop and you are on net one and you sent me 200 dollars because Andele are wealthy like that um, for free I would still receive two hundred dollars in my echo cash in a market like that it makes sense but where there isn't native mobile money interop I think 
it it will maybe juice the numbers for a bit as people try it out, but it won't gain repeated traction because it'll introduce more friction than using the incumbent mobile money method. And the trade-off is always between convenience and cost. We need to factor in how long a net one has to sustain losses. Yes, so, yes, yes. And, and you know, or, or on their way to, you know, recouping on, on this decision. Yeah. And from the outside looking in, uh, it, it doesn't appear as though Net One have, you know, $120 million Series B to spend. But then, the, but then the other thing is maybe this also speaks to just how cheaply these, <laughs> um, these, um, transactions are happening. What we were paying for SMS in 90, you know, in 98, um, clearly had nothing to do with what it actually cost to deliver the service, right? Yep, 100%. The big thing about mobile money is the cost of maintaining agency networks. Um, so yeah, I think they, there's, there's, the unit economics are a bit more honest. <laughs> yes, than, I'm, than yes, I, I, I am oversimplifying the situation though, but I mean, we are coming off uh, a money printing spree that came to a head maybe five, six years ago. I mean, they were literally printing money. Um, and, and there wasn't always a correlation between what people were being charged, even before the whole OTT dynamic, you know, properly set mm. in, you know? Um, and so, yeah, it, it will be really interesting to see if, um, net one can shake the, the, the dominance of eco cash by making this happen. Also, but does a signal, uh, a policy shift in the Zimbabwean government's attitude towards eco cash? You know, Econet's been accused in the past of being, strangely okay with the Zimbabwean government or at least okay enough to operate as well as they have and you know people questioning their integrity as a result can't speculate too much in that direction but is this the Zimbabwean government saying well we've kind of had enough of of allowing Econet through EcoCash to have the dominance they're having in our sort of monetary system we are ready to take it back perhaps that's what's happening here and this is part one I look forward to seeing how this plays out. In the meantime, heck, I'm so glad my family in Zimbabwe have an option that is far cheaper than what they've been charged uh, on, you know, on EcoCash. Granted, sending money in general is a, is a mission, so it's quite rich for them to launch this right now um, when the monetary system is, is as stressed as it is. But the one thing I forgot to, to add earlier, I promise this would be the last one, your thoughts on Google's decision to sort of ban predatory lending uh, on the, the Google Play Store and the impact or non-impact this might have on micro-lenders operating on the African continent. So Africa-focused or Africa-based startups that uh, have come to rely on the App Store to acquire customers on the African continent. Mm, I think it was getting out of hand in Kenya, at least. The top 10 apps on the Kenya, top 10 finance apps on the Kenya Play Store are all credit apps. Like each and every single one of them. It was getting out of hand. Um, some of them had ridiculous interest rates. And I think Google made the right move to sort of like regularize that and make it more easier to manage for people who are being exposed to credit for the first time. Uh, a lot of the framing and language in the products is misleading. There are very few that are actually going about it in a way that I would describe as ethical. So I think it was like definitely the right move and, uh, it's, it's timely. Otherwise it was going to create a credit crisis um, at some point. So I'm all for it. And I think that it does change. It does, you know, change the, the, the opportunity for some credit players, but then it's not that bad. Like you can do 60 day credits. You won't die. 
Also, you can sort of just you you can you can offer you can offer lending like at a percent lower than the limit, yeah. <laughs> than the prescribed limit, and get away with that. Uh, also, Ruben, given the fan you are of capitalism, uh, and I say this tongue in cheek because I know you have a very nuanced view of of what good capitalism should look like, but I I think on on the whole you're a big fan of capitalism, and I wonder if this is is not a worrying overstepping. Just let the market be Google. Like, isn't this like a a worrying signal of the the power of a platform like Google to regulate our decision to get money from who we want and the market's right to offer services that you know people are demanding surely this is a this is a trampling of our capitalist interests <laughs> uh nice caricature of my position there Andile. um <laughs> and maybe people are going to get this all wrong because they, they they're not privy to our conversations outside this so, but i really am being tongue-in-cheek here but but I, you know give it a give it a bash bro um, so about the industry in itself i want to borrow from uh, something Wiza said earlier, that you should compare this to the alternative uh, and not to nothing. So the the alternative credit industry, uh, specifically focused on Africa and I guess other developing markets, um, exists because the credit industry failed to serve those customers. And so um, I, I'm a little bit more sympathetic um, to the constraints they have to navigate, um, given some of their tactics um, are, I find like, morally reprehensible. At the same time, I recognize that they are different, they are dealing with a different risk profile, um, and a whole different situation than uh, the traditional credit industry that I guess sets our expectations for what, say, normal interest rates should look like. Um, and so in a country, in a country like Nigeria, where I think interest rates are 26% or so. So think about what that does to the cost of capital for some of these players in Nigeria. I, I don't, I imagine the situation is not much different elsewhere. Um, and then consider the amount of, consider these are unsecured loans. Um, the, the bucket of risk is completely different. And so I would hesitate to compare it directly to, um, what we, we who I guess are participating in the more traditional economy view as normal. That said, I think Google doing what they're doing is the market doing its thing, frankly. Google, I, I believe, does not have too much to say in, you know, whatever, say, a player like Transition does, for example. So Palm Credit will absolutely continue to be distributed because it comes bundled alongside, like, all Techno, uh, Infinix, and I believe iTel phones. So it's like if, if you either have a distribution advantage or your service is popular enough then there's ways to get around that. So you see that Netflix, uh, um, both Netflix and I think Fortnite, um, were are circumventing, uh, uh, the Google Play Store. Cause it's like they are, they are compelling enough that users will find a way to get them anyways. And so I wouldn't lose too much sleep about it, quite frankly. And to be fair, um, Google is acting, at least as, as far as I can tell, more in response to, the you know the pushback against uh, payday loan apps in the U.S. Yes, um, then they are sort of trying to solve for the the growing micro lending issues we have on the African continent, right? So, as far as I know, they haven't even made a statement about how they expect this decision to to impact everyone else. But also how they framed it is, I think. They framed it quite delicately. They're like, listen, we're just changing the terms of our of our app store. Um, they haven't come out in we are looking to regulate the scene, which I suppose speaks to what you're saying. Um, yeah, 
they're within their rights as a as a company to to do what they believe is right or should exist or be, happen on their platform. Yep. Yeah. Capitalism wins. Yeah, this has been a fascinating discussion. I'm pretty sure we've left out a, a number of signals, but as usual, it's you know it's it's impossible to be exhaustive on our show. I'm hoping that our, you know listeners will at very least be spurred to researching some of the the signals we've we've referenced, especially when it comes to Africa. It's a dis- we do ourselves a disservice when we just buy in hook, line, and sinker to any one person trying to sell us one thing. So, gentlemen, I couldn't be more pleased with who I've had the opportunity to share this conversation with. Again. Everything we've discussed and we've referenced in the show will be available in the show notes. So head there if you're interested in learning more and uh, reading into some of the things that are influencing our thinking right now. There's an incredible article by Wizza um, unpacking his his notion of mobile money 2.0 that's worth checking out. There's uh, an essay series by the subtext in partnership with DFS that's currently on the go worth subscribing to. If you missed the webinar, it's actually... Uh, still available to consume post the fact that's also worth tucking into especially if you've got an investment interest in the space and of course africantechroundup.com is a standing resource for you if you just like to observe the ecosystem in general and just take in some of the conversations we've had um, not just in the recent past but as far back as we've existed that's all available to you at africantechroundup.com we'd love to hear from you though hit us up on instagram or twitter at african roundup drop us an email via hello at africantechroundup.com We'd love to hear what you make of of everything we've said. Disagree if you must, you know, challenge our notions, push back on the caricature of Osaruman's capitalist uh, (laughs) self-interest. We'd love to hear it all. Give us a shout and let us know what you're feeling. Wiza Chalakasi, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me, guys. Really fantastic discussion. Shout out to the chill shores of Lake Malawi. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, Osaruman Osamui, as always, thank you for what you do at the subtext and uh, for lending your swag to this show. Thank you so much, Andale, for having me. And thank you, Wiza, for for gracing us with your presence. Pleasure's all mine. Absolutely. Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Andile Masu. Take it easy, Africa. (laughs) 